All right, ladies and gentlemen, as our children head to Children's Church, are we good? We are going to be reading from Ezekiel chapter 11, and we're going to be reading the first 13 chapter or 13 verses, excuse me, of Ezekiel chapter 11. And as you are all still standing, uh, let us continue to do so in honor of the reading of God's word. Now God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel and said these things. He said, "Moreover, the spirit, moreover, the spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faced eastward. And behold, there were twenty-five men at the entrance of the gate. And among them I saw Jehazaniah, son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, leaders of the people. And he said to them, he said to me, son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give evil advice to this city, who say, the time is not near to build houses. This city is the pot and we are the flesh. Therefore prophesy against them, son of man, prophesy. When the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord. So you think, house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. You have multiplied your slain in this city, filling the streets with them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of the city are the flesh, and this city is the pot, but I will bring you out of it. You have feared a sword, so I will bring a sword upon you, the Lord God declares. And I will bring you out of the midst of the city and I will deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgment against you. You will fall by the sword. I will judge you to the border of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be flesh in the midst of it. But I will judge you to the border of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor have you executed my ordinances, but you have acted according to the ordinances of the nations around you. Now it came about as I prophesied that Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Alas, Lord God, will you bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? Please be seated. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what your thoughts, just like God knew the thoughts of them, and you're thinking, ah, nothing like another warm and fuzzy passage of Scripture on a Sunday morning. I know that passages like these are ones that we do not expect, nor, if we are honest, do we really want to hear about when we come to church on Sunday. I also know that there are churches throughout this town, throughout our state, and even throughout our nation that would not touch a passage like this on a Sunday morning. You're never going to hear it preached. You're never going to hear it read. It's not motivational enough. It doesn't inspire you to, to live your best life. It is not what we would call a lot of times in the church today. It's not edifying. It doesn't just build me up and fill my cup and make me ready to take on the day. It doesn't have that just can-do attitude that means I can overcome whatever this week can throw at me. But I want us to stop and think for just a moment. Is it really true that, that a passage like this doesn't build up? 
is a passage like this, when we read of the judgment that is coming to the nation of Israel, does that not build up the church? After all, to build up, to edify means to to strengthen something, to build it or strengthen something up so that it may last and that it may endure. This should mean that not only do we encourage the positive, not only do we talk about the good things and strengthen what is strong and, 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 and do those type of things, but also we have to address and correct the weaknesses that we, might, that, that we see that might create a problem. I want you to imagine for a moment that you went to the doctor and, and, and I'm getting to that age, you know, and I know that some of you look at me and say, you're so young. Um, my daughter disagrees with you. And I'm getting to that age where when I go to the doctor for a checkup, they look at me and they go, hmm, we should run some tests. I don't want to run tests. I didn't like tests back in the day. I don't want tests now. And now tests involve needles. That's even worse. And they'll say, hey, let's run some tests and I'll go over to the lab and they'll draw blood. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. And for you young people that are not, they say they want to run tests and that means they want to take blood from you. If you think you have blood, sweat, and tears into your test now, Laney, wait till you're my age. I'm sure there was blood, sweat, and tears the last time they ran tests on me. And you go to the doctor, and they run their tests, and then they call you back, and you get your test, and they say, well, we ran some tests, and we noticed that your blood sugar is way high. But I have good news. Your cholesterol levels are doing great. So let's just talk about cholesterol and let's talk about a heart healthy diet and and what a great job you're doing with your cholesterol and your lipids and all those type of things. Let's just talk about that and let's send you on your day. Now, let me ask you this for all of you old folk in the house, in the room that I didn't lump myself into and and Rodney, but not Allison, um, because Rodney, he's old, but I'm not with me. When we go and, and we run our tests and they tell us, hey, there's, yeah, there's something that's a problem, but you know what? There's a lot of other stuff that's good, so let's just focus on the good today and send you on your way. Would, would you be happy about that? Would you leave the doctor's office with a feeling of, of comfort and contentment? Would you leave the doctor's office and say, man, I got my cup filled up today? Probably not. In fact, you'd probably want to get a different doctor. Because you would know that there are problems going on with your body in your system and you want to know what those problems are and what you need to do about them. If your doctor said your blood sugar is really off the charts high, but don't worry about everything else is fine. You don't want to know about everything that's fine. You don't want to be educated on everything that is good. You want to know what do I do about my blood sugar? And don't worry, my blood sugar is fine. I think. You want to know what's going on, what is wrong, and how do you do something about it? And and, and we may ask, why? Why do you want to know about this? Why do you want the doctor to focus on the negative? And I'll give you the reason why. Because you don't want it to kill you. Amen? And so you deal with the problems that are at hand because you know that those things could kill you. And so... When we come together as the church, 
we should definitely be encouraged and we should definitely talk about the good things. And we have already talked about the good things. We have worshiped God and all the, the, in all the songs that we sung and how he, is, he loves us and, and, and all of these beautiful things. We've celebrated the Lord's Supper together. And, 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 and there's a word there I want you to recognize, celebrate. We rejoice and give thanks and celebrate because of what God has done for us. But we should also address sin in our lives and in the church so that it does not ultimately destroy us. And that is what Ezekiel is doing to the city of Jerusalem in our passage and in the past and in all of the prophecies surrounding our passage. And that is what we are going to do today. And I will warn you, we're probably going to do it a few more times throughout this reading of the prophet Ezekiel. That is why when we look at a prophet like Ezekiel and we deal with what he says and how that affects our lives, we recognize that this type of topic is just as important as when we dive into one of the gospels and the words of Jesus or when we go into one of Paul's letters. Because all of these edify the church in order to make us more like Christ. So what does this passage have for us today? Well, if we get back into the topic and, and get back in, we are in the midst of a prophetic vision by Ezekiel. Now, I, I kind of want to explain what is going on because we really jump right into the middle of it. And, and we find Ezekiel is with God in the spirit. And he is suddenly just kind of standing over the east entrance of Jerusalem, specifically kind of the temple complex. And he is looking out and looking at these 25 individuals. Well, a lot more has happened up to this point, And we're going to talk about a lot of that. But this whole passage begins with Ezekiel in his home, surrounded by the elders of Judah that were also in exile with him. And so they are with him, and, and we're going to talk more about it, but they are with him waiting for God to speak through Ezekiel. And so in the midst of all of this that's going on, we find Ezekiel standing among these 25 people, and we have to ask the question, who are they and, and what are they doing that, that means that Ezekiel needs to witness this, he needs to see what's happening. These men, and what we see in our passage, represent the leadership of Jerusalem in the day of Ezekiel. These were the people that, that really set the tone for the, for the community. They gave the advice, they, they were on the councils, they were in charge of what happened in Jerusalem in general. What's interesting is, is he even goes so far as to name names. So if you imagine for just a moment, you know, he's surrounded by the elders that had been in exile. He is having this vision where he is back in Jerusalem and seeing what is happening um, in Jerusalem when, when all of them are away. And he's not only is he seeing all these people and recognizing them as kind of the, the important people of the city, but then he knows some of those people. From before, he had been cast into exile. People like uh, Jaanaziah, uh, that's, that's as close as I'm getting this morning, and uh, Pelatiah. He knows who these people are. All of these people represent for, for us, and in the midst of this prophetic vision, they represent Jerusalem, they represent Judah, they represent the nation of Israel. Basically, everybody who has not been already placed into exile. 
And so the judgment that Ezekiel is about to declare to these men is a symbolic act of God's judgment on the whole nation of Israel. Even though he is prophesying specifically to the 25 and to the leader, what he is saying is true for all of Israel. This is what is about to go down. That leads to the next question. What'd they do? What on earth, if we kind of read this and it doesn't sound like he's talking very favorably to these these people, what on earth did they do to, to warrant this level of judgment? He just sees these 25 people and just begins to hammer them with what's going to happen to them. Well, in order to understand that, jump back a few chapters. Turn to chapter 8. And this is where our prophecy begins. And this is where we are first introduced to the reality that he has been caught up in this vision. That he's been in uh, exile. He's still by the river uh, Kabar. He is with the elders of Judah who are waiting for God to do something. And in chapter 8, picking up in verse 5, we read this. And then he, the Lord, said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes now towards the north. Now remember, in our passage, he was in the east, but now he's looking towards the north. And he says, so I raised my eyes to the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was the idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abomination which the house of Israel is committing here so that I would be far from my sanctuary. But yet you will see still greater abominations. This is just the beginning of a progression through chapter 8 that gets worse and worse and worse as he has moved from vision to vision of all that is transpiring in Jerusalem. Verse 5 and 6, we see this altar that that they call just kind of the, the altar of jealousy. We don't really get a specific about what altar was here, what, what idol, what altar was here, but it was something that the term of the, the, the idol of jealousy means an idol that provoked the jealousy of God. And so within Jerusalem, right by the gate to the, the temple gate where, where sacrifices would be brought in, they had erected an idol and built an altar to that idol. And so he sees this and says, look what they're doing. But it gets worse. In chapter 7 through, or excuse me, uh, verse 7 through to verse 13, we are set into another uh, worship situation. In fact, it says that he discovers a secret door, a hidden door, and he opens up to find the elders of the city of Jerusalem worshiping in secret. And he talks about all of these creatures along the walls and that they are worshiping snakes and snails and and who knows what else, all sorts of animals. And and these people are worshiping in secret. Now, likely, if we know our history, they are actually worshiping in secret because they're not worshiping the approved gods of Babylon, but are actually probably worshiping Egyptian gods. So not only do they have their giant altar out in the middle of of the, the temple complex to worship some pagan god that the Babylonians approved of, but they're also worshiping other gods in secret. Egyptian gods likely because they were pleading with the gods of Egypt to deliver them from the hands of Babylon. Imagine for just a moment the people who had been delivered from Egypt into the promised land were now worshiping the gods of Egypt in order to maintain the land that was promised to them. 
Still going forward in verses 14 and 15, we see our gaze cast to women in the courtyard who are crying over another god, another god called Tammuz. Tammuz was a god of fertility, and they cried over Tammuz because every fall and every summer they would begin to see the leaves dry up and change colors, and, and all of the green of spring would begin to go away. And so women would ceremonially mourn because Tammuz would, would be going away, but they knew that he would come back again in the springtime. And so the women had, had organized around this worship. Finally, in verses 16 and 17, Ezekiel is caught up and brought into the inner part of the temple complex, a place that only priests were allowed to go. And there he saw people among the nation of Israel with their backs to the temple, the backs to the, the holy place and the place where God was supposed to reside as they faced the sun in order to worship the sun. In case you haven't picked it up by now, the problem with Jerusalem was its idolatry. And the judgments of God that we read about in chapter 10 and we see in throughout our passage is because of the idolatrous heart of the people of Israel. We may ask the question, what does this mean for us? And what we need to recognize from all of these visions that we see in chapter 8 is that Israel had completely given herself over to the worship of idols. First, we see how they mixed worship with the one, of the one true God with the worship of these idols. One of the interesting things as we go back and revisit the women crying over Tammuz is this came into being because of Solomon. See, Solomon, who was the wisest king of all of, of Israel and the last king of the unified Israel, he began to take on all these wives. And these were wives not from the, the nation of Israel, but wives from all over, from all the people. They were political appointments or just Solomon never denying himself anything that his heart desired. And all of these women came in and they brought their own gods and Solomon did not call them to worship the one true God, but rather said, if you want to worship your gods, that's fine. And so suddenly all of the worship of these other things began to pop up as he catered to and, 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 and allowed this among his, his many wives. And what they began to see was the worship of the one true God beginning to become mixed in with the worship of false gods. And they began to blend together so that even within a house that may say on the surface that they feared the Lord, we saw the women keeping traditions that were more closely related to idolatry. This type of synchronizing or mixing of worship we do see in the church today and we do need to be mindful of. When we say we worship God, but in reality we are celebrating political parties and candidates more than the God who redeemed us. We put our trust in politics or tradition or 
Bible translations more than we do the God who is the creator of them all. Second, we see in this passage through all the idolatrous worship of the nation of Israel that that they wanted what they thought the idols could provide. Thinking specifically of these secret idols that were worshipped behind closed doors. These were the the leaders of Israel worshipping Egyptian gods in hopes that the Egyptians got, Egyptian gods would release them from the captivity of Babylon. To be quite honest, the reason they did this was because they knew, according to the religions, that trying to appeal to the gods of Egypt would be easier and faster than what God would require them to do. So often... In our culture today, and I think very true in the churches to church today, we would rather do what is easy and quick than what is godly. And when we have a choice to make about how we are going to handle a situation, pursue a relationship, function as a church, prioritize our worship, anything like that, we are always tempted to pick what is quick and easy instead of sometimes what is hard and biblical. See, these worshipers in secret knew that they could burn their incense and say their ritualistic prayers, leave out food or or perform some sort of other lewd act in order to to, uh, uh, appease and interest a God that they thought might be able to help them when they knew that what God required was their repentance. But guys, repentance is often very hard. And so be careful that you don't ultimately choose what is quick and easy over repentance and turning back to the God who actually has the power to save. Finally, I think what we see from all these passages is that eventually they did not feel any shame at all. They felt no fear of the Lord, no shame in their own sin. They erected their altars right by the door of the temple and they defiled the inner courts with their backs to God's dwelling place so that they may face the sun in order to worship it, the sun that God created when he created the heavens and the earth. It's one of the scariest things about our world today is we take things that are so clearly sinful and instead of being in shame and calling to repentance, we celebrate these things and create parades and movements and political ideologies and all sorts of nonsense because we no longer have fear of the Lord and shame over sin. Imagine the nation of Israel The one who was delivered from the hands of Egypt, went through the 40 years of wilderness, took the promised land, saw David, unified their nation, all of these wonderful things, and they knew it was Yahweh who did it. And then slowly, progressively, the truth of the the good news of who God is and all that he had done for them through Moses and Joshua and, and, and David and all that up began to erode and erode and erode until they weren't even ashamed to worship another God. Imagine it for a moment. Oh, wait, we don't need to. Now, the United States is not Israel. 
But we can be very familiar with the idea of a culture that erodes and wanders and compromises to the point that now in this day and age, we have churches that are led by people who do not believe in God and promote things that show they have no fear of Him. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, this is how sin and idolatry seeps into the church today. Sin and idolatry does not come in the church because one day you walk into the church and we suddenly have an altar built up in the front instead of the Lord's Supper table and a pulpit. Idolatry and sin does not seep into the church by some huge, grandiose thing where we just suddenly declare we're going a completely new direction. Sin and idolatry seeps into the church, and I dare say seeps into our lives when we are enticed by the world to mix our worship with worldly things. We are convinced by the world to do what makes sense and to pursue what is quick and even easy, even when we know it denies God and his proper place in our hearts and lives. And ultimately, we become so numb to sin that the world and idolatry, um, to the sin, the world, and idolatry that we no longer even hide it. And brothers and sisters, that is a scary place to be. And yet, all the time, I bet everyone in this room, and sometimes maybe even be guilty of it ourselves, where we will live in sin and yet claim to be a Christian. Jesus had these words to say about such people. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. We find that in Mark chapter 7, verse 6. See, the nation of Israel had completely given its heart over to idolatry. It didn't happen overnight. But it happened through a string of compromise to the point that they no longer felt shame over it. This is why it is so important for us as the church and us as individuals to constantly be going back to the Lord and saying, God, if there is any wicked way in me, please reveal it to me so that I might repent and begin to walk with you. So often we don't live lives where we begin to think about and, and, and circumspect about how are we are work, walking with the Lord. We do not find ourselves someone that will hold us accountable and encourage us through that so that we can, we can say, am I wrong here? And they can say, yes! We don't have that in our lives, and so we never take that good, hard look at our lives. We don't listen to the Holy Spirit and its promptings, and we are allowed to merrily skip our way down the path of sin to the point that we don't even care anymore. That is often one of the most heartbreaking phrases that I hear from my children. And I'll be honest, they say it all the time. As when we are trying to teach them, and we are trying to instruct them, and we are trying to show them why what they are doing is not what is best for them, they throw their hands up and say, I don't even care anymore. It's a dangerous place to be. Because when the Christian stops caring about walking with Jesus, they're in a very dangerous place. As we move on from chapter eight to chapter nine, we begin to see that there are both physical and spiritual consequences for their sin. 
Not only do we get the words uh, of uh, Ezekiel in, this t- in, the, in our chapter today, in chapter 10, where he begins to tell them, there is going to be very real and significant consequences to your sin. See, the people, if we go back to chapter 10, what happened was, is they thought, this is that, that meat pot analogy, which I know doesn't translate super well into our culture today. They said, listen, this is, is going to sound weird. Because we, we would talk about flesh, we're, we're in Halloween, we would think gross zombie stuff. They said, we are the choice cuts of meat. And we are protected by this pot. And so the fire around us is not going to scorch us, it's not going to burn us, but, but we are going to stay choice cuts of meat. Now I know that sounds weird. Different day, different age. And so when they looked at that, they viewed themselves as God's elect. And, th- and that's what the meat means, the flesh And he said, and we are protected in this pot. And that's how you would cook that meat. And so they said, we are God's chosen elect and Jerusalem is our protection. And so nothing is going to get us as long as we are here. And when Ezekiel prophesies to them, he says, no. You fear the sword and you think Jerusalem will protect you from it. But I'm telling you this day, it will not. And you will find yourself outside of the pot. And I will chase you as far as the borders of Israel. And I will strike you down with the sword. Real, actual, in this moment, physical consequences to sin. And maybe for those leaders, that's what's scary. But what is scary to me, far more scary than being struck by the sword in chapter 10, is what happens throughout 9 and 10. And throughout 9 and 10, what we see happen is the glory of the Lord first that is supposed to dwell inside the temple suddenly moves outside of the temple. And if you go to chapter 9, you'll see, and I'm not going to get all the, I'm not going to quote all the things, but suddenly the glory of the Lord moves from inside the temple to the front porch of the temple. And then a little bit later, we see it move from, from outside of, of the front porch of the temple onto the, the temple gate and is suddenly no longer in the temple proper, but just on the wall of the temple. And there it sits and we have the vision of the cherubim and the presence of the Lord and the glory of the Lord with the cherubim that we met all the way back in chapter 1. And suddenly it's no longer even in the temple, but just on the wall. And then finally, what we ultimately see at the end of, of all these chapters is that the glory of the Lord leaves Jerusalem entirely. And the cherubim and the throne and the glory of the Lord finally, ultimately, finds its resting place on the mountain near Jerusalem. Chapter 11, verse 23, it says, The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which was east of the city. For generations, the nation of Israel believed that God's presence dwelled first in the tabernacle and then in the temple in Jerusalem. But as of chapter 11, verse 23, that was no longer true. Their idolatry meant that God's presence was leaving the city and they would soon experience his wrath. we should be reminded that sin always affects our relationship with God. This is communicated well through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59 when he says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short 
so that it cannot save, but nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Guys, I plead with you today. Do not leave unrepented sin in your life. And do not continue on in sin as though there are no consequences. As though you just don't care anymore. Because sin has not only immediate physical consequences in your life right now, but sin has lasting spiritual consequences that can lead you on a path away from God and not towards Him. When that, that sermon stings, when that passage convicts, when that accountability partner upsets you, be mindful that God is not saying to you, repent, so that you might be restored to me. I thought of what Romans 6 said as I read this passage. And in Romans 6, chapter 1, it says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. But how shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's the question for us today. If we have sin in our life, how can we who say that we died to sin... And we see that by our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when we turn from sin and turn to Jesus. That's what we say when we pass through the baptismal waters and say the old me is gone and dead and the new me is alive. I have died to sin and therefore I will live in Christ. How can we who say that we have died to sin and live for Christ still live in sin? It is nonsense. And it is why we need to repent After Ezekiel prophesied to the nation and to its leaders, he saw one of them die right in his very midst. Pelatiel, Pelatiah, excuse me, his very name means that the Lord delivers or the Lord saves. And when he saw that that was the one who died, Ezekiel asked the question, God, will Israel be no more? Are you going to destroy everything? And he gave an answer. No. In fact, picking up in verse 16, I want to read what he says. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while while in the countries that they had gone. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you to the countries among which you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. And when they have come, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. 
and they will be my people, and I shall be their God. Once again, we are reminded that even though God deals with sin, He does not abandon completely. You may have remembered from the beginning that I said that at this moment, the elders and the leaders of of Judah who were in exile were all sitting with Ezekiel, waiting for him to have a vision from God. And it's curious when we compare them to the very ones that Ezekiel has spoken about in our passage today. See, those who had been scattered waited eagerly for a word from the Lord. And yet those who were there in the temple had turned their backs on him to worship other gods. I want you to understand one last thing about our passage today. And that is this. It is the heart that makes you a child of God, not your location. You may be in a million different places in your life right now. You may be doing well. You may be struggling. You may be healthy. You may be sick. You may feel like you have it all together. You may feel like your world is falling apart around you. But where is your heart? Is your heart pointed towards God? Is your heart earnestly desiring to know him and to seek his will? Is your heart in a position of repentance for even the sin in your life and and you are longing and yearning to be with God and in his presence and trust him no matter what may come? Or are you relying on yourself? Are you trusting your own holiness, your own routine, your own traditions, your own bank account and your own way? And you think maybe, just maybe, if you're good enough and you're strong enough and you're smart enough and you're rich enough that everything will be okay. I want you to hear me today. It doesn't matter if you're in this building or not. I want you here. And I think ultimately, if your heart is in the right place, you'll be here or a place like here. But being in here does not make you right with God. Your heart and your heart's desire is what's going to make the difference. And that all begins by giving our heart to Christ. From turning from our ways and our wants and our sin, repenting and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It didn't matter that the leaders of Jerusalem were in Jerusalem. It didn't matter that they had access to the temple. It didn't matter that they were the ones that got to stay behind and these these people that are with Ezekiel had been exiled and were off hundreds of miles away from their home. One of them eagerly waited for a word from the Lord and the other turned turned their backs away. Which one are you? Has life and your own desires caused you to turn your back on God to find your own way? Or are you looking to the Father and saying, God, speak to me. Save me. 
I repent of my sin, and I want to be close to you. If your desire is to be close with God today, and I don't know what that might mean for you, maybe that means surrendering your life to Christ for the very first time, then we want to give you an opportunity to do that. Maybe that means joining in fellowship with this church. Maybe you've, you've believed and you've surrendered your life to Jesus, but you've never made that known by baptism. I don't know. But if your heart is being turned towards God today, maybe for the first time in a long time, we want to invite you to respond to that, to come, to allow us to pray for you, to allow us to encourage you. We want to encourage you to do that. However God is speaking to you today, I would plead with you today, do not turn your back on God to worship something that will never be Him. But repent, believe, and surrender your life to Christ today. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Lord, we do thank you for your word. God, we praise you that, that you give us passages like this, Lord. And they're hard passages, and they're challenging, and they're not exactly always the most uplifting things in the world. But God, even in the midst of, of the truth and the reality that you hate sin, we still see your grace. And God, that even though you hate sin and that you will deal with sin both in this life and in, and in eternity, God, we can also be reminded that your grace is abounding. And that if we will just come to you in repentance, if we will turn away from those other things that we worship and wholly, completely surrender our lives to you, God, that you will save us, that you will forgive us, that you will restore us, and God, that we will be able to recover and pursue God's, your design for our lives. Lord, I pray that there is not a single person in this room today that will walk out of here with their back and their heart's disposition still turned away from you. But God, I pray that you will pierce through all of the idols and all of the darkness and call us back into a relationship with you. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.